That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Prince Archie and Princess Lilibet finally get their royal titles. Prince William's former aide is in hot water. And King Charles III and Queen Camilla get heckled twice in one week. I'm Jack Royston, Newsweek's Chief Royal Correspondent, and this is Newsweek's Royal Report. Hello, listeners, and welcome to the show. At Newsweek, we have been updating our house style to accommodate a new prince and princess, formerly known as Archie and Lilibet Mountbatten-Windsor. Now, Archie and Lilibet turns out to have been entitled to use prince and princess as their titles since September, when the Queen died and Charles became king. Uh, so this all has to do with something called the George V Convention. Basically, if you if you watched the Oprah interview, you might remember that it actually got a mention during Meghan's one-on-one interview with Oprah before Harry joined. So the George V Convention is something that dates back to about 1970. And it stipulates that anybody who is the grandchild of the reigning monarch should be titled prince or princess, depending on their gender. So it was all kind of originally thought that this was automatic and that there was no real doubt or question about it. And then Meghan told Oprah that there had been discussions about changing the rules so that Archie and Lily, who hadn't been born yet, um, would not be prince and princess. So first of all, to just stop and take a moment to say... Archie and Lily, congratulations, you are now Prince Archie and Princess Lilibet. Um, And that having been said, we can now turn to the slightly more complicated question of what this actually means, what it means for, for their future, what it means for Harry and Meghan, what it means for the monarchy, and what it means for all these questions about the royal rift that we've been talking about for years and years. So first, to just go back to that interview and what Meghan actually said. And what she said was, she gave this whole talk about how they were discussing taking Archie's security away from him. Um, and then that seemed to be linked, in certainly as far as Harry and Meghan were concerned, to the question of whether or not he was a prince. And then Meghan also said that at the same time as those conversations were happening, there were also concerns and conversations about how dark his skin might be when he was born. So the whole question of whether their children would get titles was bound up in this whole question of what was originally thought to be an allegation of racism against an unnamed royal family member. Harry, more recently in in, uh, January, suggested that in his view it amounted to unconscious bias rather than racism. But needless to say, either way, it speaks to that most central, most explosive aspect of the Oprah Winfrey interview. Um, so now, fast forward the clock two years later, and uh, almost exactly two years later, in fact, it was it was one day off the anniversary of the Oprah Winfrey interview being broadcast. Um, Harry and Meghan confirmed publicly for the first time that Lilibet was a princess, and they did this in a state through their spokesperson in a statement about the fact that Lilibet has had her christening in Montecito at their house and with a bishop from Los Angeles. So it was a, a private ceremony that guests included Tyler Perry. It all uh, was broken by People magazine. 
But very rapidly, the conversation turned away from the christening itself and towards this question about titles. Um, one interesting thing from my point of view is just that it took so long for us to find this out and that when we did find it out, it was kind of dropped in seamlessly into a wider question about the actual christening. And I just wonder whether it might be better to just kind of get this detail out on its own first so that Princess Lilibet's christening could be her just Princess Lilibet's christening and not bound up in this other question. Um, And I also wonder whether this might be an opportunity for Harry and Meghan to say some to revisit this issue in a slightly more positive way. It has long occurred to me that Britain initially and now America too might be getting slightly fed up it's fine to have criticisms, that's fine, especially if those criticisms serve the public interest. But if you can only say negative things about that experience, then that also begs a question about, you know, whether, you, like, why you're still connecting yourself to monarchy. Um, Harry, as recently as January, said he still believes in monarchy and the, even the act of using prince and princess titles is kind of, to an extent, an endorsement of the privileges that monarchy brings. So if you're going to acknowledge all of that and you're going to kind of continue to be connected to all of that, then does it make sense to say something positive about the fact that these titles have now been given after all? Now, I should say at this point, um, there was a lot of kind of fanfare in the media about uh, at the time that Meghan made these comments saying that she was wrong or that she was lying, or that she had misrepresented the situation. So I was always told at that time that Meghan was only ever talking about conversations about something that might possibly take place, but that had not actually taken place. So Meghan never actually said that the change to kind of almost disinherit her children from their titles had actually happened. She was simply saying that she was very concerned about the fact that these conversations were taking place behind closed doors. So I was also told that this whole question, the context for it, was this question of um, slimming down the monarchy, which has obviously been Charles's big project now, dating back to the 1990s. So this first, this idea of slimming down the monarchy first reared its head um, back when it was the days of Prince Andrew and his daughters. And there was this kind of big internal argument within the palace about what role Andrew, Beatrice and Eugenie, and also Edward, the uh, Charles and Andrew's younger brother would play in the future of the monarchy. And Charles, it seemed, wanted to focus on the line of succession, i.e. his children, plus Princess Anne, and, you know, Edward and Andrew were to be, uh, and their children were to be sidelined. In the final, Andrew argued his case and won a partial victory in the sense that him and Edward were continued to be included. But Beatrice and Eugenie were denied a kind of role as working royals. And they also, they didn't lose their police protection right away, but they, and they certainly didn't lose their princess titles. They are still princess. But they did ultimately, they, they didn't have a career as working royals. They had to find jobs in the private sector and they, did, they lost police protection after they went to university. So that's the context for it. But yeah, I mean, it's, I guess it's a good sign. You could interpret it as an olive branch that this uh, this kind of act of disinheritance was not performed on Archie and Lilibet, that they do have, obviously they don't have security, but they, they are now prince and princess. 
I wonder whether a reciprocal olive branch from Harry and Meghan might actually help to alleviate some of the fatigue that I think the American public are feeling in relation to the negative aspects of Harry and Meghan's story. So in other words, if it is a good thing and a positive thing that they've been given these titles, a positive, such a positive thing that you want to announce it publicly so that people know, then does it make sense to actually say something positive about it? To actually explain, for example, why you chose to use the titles? Because that's the secondary question here. It's one thing that they've been given those titles or be that they are entitled to use them. But the other question is whether they actually should use them. And Megan, during the Oprah interview, pointed out that there are actually some, some negative aspects to having titles. You know, she said, in her words, that they bring a lot of pain. That is you know, a matter of opinion. Some people may think differently, although I think actually Princess Anne has said similar things. She, her children didn't get titles by her choice because she felt that there were downsides to it. But if you are then going to take those titles and you've said all this stuff about the fact that your children were potentially not going to get them, I just think that it's an opportunity to say something positive to provide a kind of the other side of the story, another narrative beyond the negative, beyond the, what, you know, it's like people, talk, people have been talking, anyone who's a regular listener to this show will know, we've talked about it before, there is a growing sense in the American media now, um, particularly among comedians, that Harry and Meghan are, you know, some people use the phrase professional victims, that they complain a lot, so why not give us something new like why not give us something different why not say something positive why not kind of explain why it is you're using these titles why it is that you think it's a positive thing and yeah i think that would help them i I don't think that it would be seen as a bad thing i think it would actually help provide an antidote to the relentless negativity i do have to also take a small detour though to point one thing out because there was there were two statements from harry and megan spokesperson the first one simply referenced princess Lilibet, and then the second one said that um the prince and princess titles had been available since september and were their children's birthright and some people took massive exception to this and they took exception specifically to the idea that harry and Meghan viewed these titles as a birthright as though that were somehow kind of well i guess literal entitlement but I do think that those people might just want to take a brief detour to consider the concept of hereditary monarchy. Of course, titles are a birthright. That is the entire concept of monarchy. And it has to fight. This is why they Charles kind of had to give the titles. He could not interrupt that process and change the rules because the entire concept of hereditary monarchy is that power is passed down from generation to generation based on birthright rather than you know any kind of meritocratic principle you don't earn royal titles you get them by the nature of you having been born into the into this family and there is nothing in the George V convention to suggest that you know you lose the titles if your parents go on Oprah and criticize the monarchy like that's not how it works that's not what it says so i think that was genuinely an unfair criticism and it just comes back to that thing that everything they do does wind up seeming to become a big argument even when it's a christening even when it's basically a story about christening and that's why i think harry and Meghan should basically have done two separate things one at the earliest opportunity maybe not right after the queen had died because that would have been seen as tactless but maybe round about the time that harry was doing all of those interviews should just have come out and clarified that the titles had been given and they've been available since september and they were going to use them and they had made that decision because 
And yeah, like say something positive. And on that note, I'm going to take a quick break. But before I do, a reminder to rate and review The Royal Report in Apple Podcasts or on Spotify or wherever you get your favourite shows. And when I am back, a former Palisade has been on the ropes in a scandal about professionalism. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the show. Prince William's former private secretary played a crucial role in the allegations that Meghan Markle bullied her staff at Kensington Palace. Now, Simon Case has been in the news in Britain again. This time it's about private WhatsApp messages that were leaked to the media during his time in government. Um, So Simon Case, he started off in politics. He worked in Downing Street under Theresa May and David Cameron. And then he was recruited to be Prince William's private secretary. He moved over to Kensington Palace. There he presided over the era in which Meghan was accused of bullying her staff. After that, he went back to government under Boris Johnson, um, and he was involved in the government's handling of the coronavirus pandemic. So what's happened here is Simon Case has actually been a little bit unlucky because none of this really was his fault in terms of it becoming public, but he has become collateral damage in a spectacularly ill-judged decision by the former Health Secretary Matt Hancock. Now, for those uh, who perhaps understandably do not follow the ins and outs of UK politics, Matt Hancock has become a kind of slightly sort of comedy hate figure in Britain. He was uh, blamed for a lot that went wrong during the coronavirus pandemic, and he's disliked equally by people who hate lockdowns as he is by people who think that the government didn't lock down enough. But also to compound his problems, he then went on a reality TV show called I'm a celebrity, um, get me out of here, while he was still a sitting MP. And he's now basically been kicked out of the Tory party as a result. So he's already a kind of slightly problematic figure and he wanted to write a memoir. So he hired a journalist called Isabel Oakeshott, who has really made absolutely no secret of the fact that she disagreed with a lot of his policies. She was an outspoken opponent of lockdown and she wrote the book for him. It came out that was all fine. Um, And then she leaked all of his WhatsApp messages to the Daily Telegraph as part of her opposition to the government's policies on coronavirus. Now, among all of these WhatsApp messages were all of these messages (laughs) written by Simon Case, who it turns out was laughing at people who were, in his words, locked up in quarantine hotels during the pandemic. And he made some other real judge remarks, including about Rishi Sunak, who's now the Prime Minister. Back then, he was um, in charge of the nation's finances. 
Um, and worse still for Simon Case is some people in Westminster are suggesting that more is going to come out during a public inquiry into coronavirus and he will likely lose his job in the long term. So the question then is, why does this matter to the royal family? And the answer to that question is that he was a central figure in this whole thing about Harry and Meghan falling out with the staff at Kensington Palace, which is really the kind of ground zero of how everything disintegrated. And so you may well remember that the communication secretary at KP, Jason Knuff, wrote this famous email in which he accused Meghan of bullying her staff. And he um, he sent it to Simon Case. Simon Case was William's private secretary at the time, so Case received this email and passed it on to HR um, at Clarence House, um, which makes him a central figure already, but what kind of even more cements his role in this whole debacle is that in Harry's book, Spare, Harry's position is that there was a poisoned atmosphere at Kensington Palace, there were people hunched over their desks weeping. You know, there was a, a, an atmosphere so toxic that constructive criticism was impossible and all feedback was uh, interpreted as extremely offensive. Um, however, Harry says that Meghan did absolutely nothing wrong and in his mind it's all the fault of what he describes as staff who William brought in from government. And the point at which he describes this problem is round about the time that Case started his job in July 2018. So this is all before the bullying scandal came out. That didn't come out until 2021. And Meghan was described as Duchess Difficult in the press in Britain in December 2018. So right now, it's all still a secret. It's all happening behind closed doors. But clearly, Simon Case is one of the people who Harry has in his sights over this whole issue. Um, He is also very widely believed to be the man who Harry describes as being the fly because, and I won't use Harry's language because it's not fit for a Newsweek podcast, but Harry describes him as the fly because in his words, he spends his time surrounded by, uh, what's the right word to use here? I guess we can say excrement and particularly the excrement of the political world. And uh, so really, it's very clear that I don't know that Simon Case is the only person in the frame for that, but certainly one of the people who Harry has in mind for sure. And I don't think it's possible to definitively answer the question of whether Meghan bullied her staff or indeed whether Harry bullied the staff based purely on this uh, this new information about Case. But I think Harry and Meghan supporters will definitely chalk it up as a point in their corner that his professionalism has been called into question in other circumstances. No doubt uh, if Case were free to speak publicly, which he isn't as head of the civil service in Britain, no doubt if he were, I'm sure he might well have a different perspective on events than Harry and Meghan do. Now, I'm going to take one more quick break. But before I do, a reminder to follow me on Twitter. I'm at Jack underscore Royston and you will find all my latest stories for Newsweek. When I'm back, King Charles has been given the clearest indication yet that anti-monarchy protest is mean business. This episode is brought to you by Philo. Do you love TV? Do you love saving money? Then Philo is your solution. Philo has shows, movies, and live TV for just $25 a month. You can even try it for free with their seven-day free trial. 
No contracts, no commitments, no hassles, just a better way to watch TV. Never miss a minute of shows like the hit docuseries Where is Wendy Williams or classics such as Friends. If you can't get enough TV, then there's no better way to watch. Philo has more than 70 channels like BET, MTV, and AMC. And the best part? You can try it yourself with their seven-day free trial. Sign up today at philo.tv slash poppods. That's P-H-I-L-O dot TV slash P-O-P-P-O-D-S to get 50% off your first month. Hi, everyone, and welcome back. We've known for a long time that the anti-monarchy campaign group Republic plans to protest the coronation. And in fact, we've known since before the Queen died that they planned to target Charles once he was king. Now, though, their campaign is really heating up, uh, and the King and Queen Camilla have been heckled twice in a week. The first time was during a visit to Colchester on March the 7th, but demonstrators were also out at the Commonwealth Day service on Monday, March the 13th, and they were chanting, not my king, and they were holding placards, and they were being photographed by the media. So, this is obviously difficult for Charles, Um, and there's not really a huge amount that he can do about it. The only thing he can really do is ignore it, and the real question, though, is whether Republic are right that Britain doesn't care about Charles in the same way it did about the Queen. Now, if they are correct about that, then Charles has a massive problem on his hands and it could potentially only grow as the years pass. Obviously, he got had a huge uh, boost in his popularity in the eyes of Britain um, when he first became king, because that was during the period of national mourning when everybody was grieving for the loss of Elizabeth II. Um, As time passes, obviously, some of those feelings dissipate. The nation is no longer looking to him for the kind of leadership that they were looking for during the period of national mourning. So I think the only thing you can do is just see where this goes. And if it's entirely possible that Republic will simply stage their protests, monarchists will no doubt come out in force as well for the coronation and they may be cheering and Republic may be booing um, and Charles can just brazen it all out and see what happens. But... I think looming in the in the back of the minds of everybody at the palace will be the fact that um, there has been a lot of conversations in what are termed Commonwealth realms. So this is countries around the world that still count Charles as their king. And there's been a lot of conversations there about removing the king as head of state. So if this starts to become a thing and there are kind of regular or semi-regular decisions by nations around the world, of which there are 15, um, to remove Charles as head of state, then that will inevitably give rise to more serious discussions in Britain. Um, And I think one country to really watch here is going to be Australia. Uh, Australia has so much in common with Britain culturally that there were definitely times in my lifetime when it felt inconceivable, really, that Australia would cut ties with Britain in that way. But it, as every, each year passes now, it feels less unlikely. So that if a day comes when Australia removes the king as head of state, then I think that is when serious uh, questions will start to be asked at home in Britain. And we'll just have to see whether we get there or not. You know, if Charles doesn't experience as many of those referendums or if the referendums wind up leading to a vote in order to keep him rather than remove him, then it could all kind of fizzle out. Um, That is still a possibility. Otherwise, he is going to need to think very seriously about how to forge his own relationship with the British public of the kind that 
Queen had. So the Queen's relationship with the public was incredibly strong. It was built partly on her kind of having lived through the Second World War in the same way that the people around her did. She was evacuated to Windsor Castle in the same way that children were evacuated uh, around Britain or from British cities out to the countryside. But also it was forged during decades that followed and um, she was a source of leadership as recently as, you know, the coronavirus pandemic, but probably, I would say, one of her best speeches, um, so close to the end of her reign. Um, Charles needs to kind of find some way to forge a similar connection with British people in order to cement his role as the current head of state. And that is it for this episode of The Royal Report. So please be sure to join me every week when I visit the latest royal headlines and embark on some royal deep dives and riff on all things royal. And until next time, I'm Jack Royston. Thank you for listening, everybody, and a curtsy to you all. Being a staple in American media for over 90 years, Newsweek now brings you an exceptional lineup of podcasts. The debate. They'll recognize how these policies aren't working. They'll feel the pain and they'll change their behavior. The Josh Hammer Show. Restore the principles and the political paradigms of the American founding. The Crystal Knight Show. Just because officers are black doesn't mean that the policing system still isn't inherently racist. Fast women. Chevy's actually doing really well and Honda's really not. Wow. (laughs) It's like the opposite of most people's perception of them. It is. The Parting Shot. Every year when the new nominations are announced, I get this excited, nostalgic feeling, and it brings out that little kid in me who just loved movies. The Royal Report. Harry and Meghan's head of comms has announced they now move forward to their kind of future outside the royal family. Newsweek Podcasts. New episodes drop weekly. Download or listen now at Newsweek.com or wherever you get your podcasts.